Welcome to Case Closed, the Contingency Fee Podcast. On the show, our team of industry experts interviews contingency fee attorneys. You will discover everything from how they got started to the secrets of their success and what's working in today's marketplace. And now, here's the Case Closed Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we have our next session of the Case Closed Podcast. Steve, tell everyone your full name and your background. Sure. Uh, my name is Stephen Littner. I live in uh, a suburb of Boston. I've lived here most of my life. Married for uh, almost 28 years. Uh, three sons. I'm very proud of them. It's my uh, my wife and I's greatest achievement. Our boys are uh, two are out of college and one is a sophomore in college. I graduated from UMass Amherst back in 1992 and then went straight to law school at Suffolk Law in Boston. And I've been practicing in Boston throughout that entire time, which is about 28 years now. And um, proud to say that when I started as a law clerk while in law school, I worked for uh, a small firm and one of the lawyers in that firm, his name is Michael Ross and has now uh, been my partner along with uh, James Merrigan. We've been together now for 25 plus years. So that's not very common. It's pretty atypical these very days, atypical. Uh, especially in what we do, which is 99% of what we do or represent uh, injured persons and various types of claims, auto accidents, uh, slip and falls, workers' compensation. But for the three of us to stay together that long is is not common. I think it's testament to how hard we work and the respect we have for each other. So I'm proud of that. I really am. Do you do any mass torts? Not much in the way of mass torts, no. I mean, most of what I do are are representing individuals from basically seen seen it all, whether it's a a simple fender bender to really a catastrophic injury, wrongful death claim, product liability, medical malpractice, not as much as I used to when malpractice, a lot of workers' compensation, but not not much in the way of mass torts, but representing individuals and families um, through claims. And how has CMS and all the Medicare set-aside affected your work comp practice? I mean, it comes into play when you're representing an older individual um, more than anything in terms of the, the Medicare set-off that, you know, will engage and we've have engaged, yeah, the name escapes me now, but companies that help us put that together. But it hasn't, it hasn't happened too often. Um, mainly we're dealing with that uh, in situations if the, if the injured worker is someone that was on Medicare or I believe when they're 62 and a half or 63 and a half, you have to do the set aside when it comes to a, what's called the lump sum agreement here in Massachusetts. What's the best advice you've ever gotten and who gave it to you? Uh, my mom. <laughs> Uh, my mom, I've always been a guy that um, isn't afraid to speak my mind and, and engage in discussion. My mom told me many, many years ago, she said, Stephen, God gave you one mouth and two ears. And she asked me, why is that? And I said, I don't know. She said, because you can therefore listen twice as much as you speak. So I think that's good advice. Um, and as I've gotten older, and practiced and more experienced, um, the art of listening is is important, whether it be listening to your client, 
understanding that it's over and above what's in those medical records, um, but really understanding the story and how it's affected them. When you're taking depositions of uh, opposing parties or medical experts, whatever it is, to to really listen. And that's not easy. The speaking has never come hard for me. It's the listening that's taken a lot of practice. So off the top of my head, I would say that's pretty darn good advice that she gave me many years ago. What is the biggest frustration you have in your practice? I deal with a lot of insurance companies and I am much happier and I've developed good relationships with a lot of the adjusters and managers and a defense counsel. And I never have a problem, even if I am vehemently opposed to their position, but I never have a problem arguing a case on its merits, whether it be on liability grounds, causation, value of damages. I welcome it. And what frustrates me is a lot of the the big advertising type insurance companies, and I, I won't specifically name them. You're not ever dealing with the merits of the claims with them. They just... They are just very frustrating. They, they'll frankly offer insulting uh, offers to resolve a case, and you're never really talking about the merits. There's no, even if they have some points that they make, it's just not realistic. And it's frustrating because it's almost as if when I get a new claim, specifically if it's an auto accident case, I can almost tell from the outset, based on who the insurance company is, how the case is going to progress and proceed. Do you, do you have bad faith claims? In- you do, but, you know, look, to be frank with you, on some of these cases, when the injuries are relatively modest and if it's a soft tissue case and, you know, there's a range of fair value. And when you litigate a case and you if you, you bring in bad faith, which is uh, under Chapter 93A in Massachusetts, it's the Consumer Protection Bad Faith Statute, it's hard because those added costs and litigating a case and taking depositions and the delay and all that, ultimately the fair value of the case, you may ultimately win the battle but lose the war because it's your client that you know wants the fair results. And sometimes if you're ringing up and having a tremendous amount of expenses and dealing with the bad faith aspect, ultimately it may not serve your client's interest. So that's just what's frustrating. And it just... It shouldn't be who the insurer is that determines the merits of the case. And unfortunately, that, that is the most frustrating aspect of my practice. Um, how are you helping the next generation of lawyers? You know, we have a lot of, um, we're small practice, but we have paid interns. I, I'm not someone that has someone intern for us and not be paid. I, it's hard enough to get by <laughs> with tuitions and everything else, but you know, I really do remember when I was at that point in my career. So I'm not one that when I'm working with our, our staff and our, our younger associates or uh, the, the law clerks, I'm not somebody that just says, okay, do this, do that, do this. I make it a point to ask questions and invite questions from them because A, it serves my interest, to be honest, that somebody understands why we're doing something, what the next step is, why are we doing this particular, taking this avenue in one case versus another. And I I think it's really helpful. Look, you know, we have a a good number of clients. Our practice depends on having a good caseload. 
So my eyes can't be on every file every single day. It's not possible. So when, when my eyes are on one or certainly anyone who's working with us, for us, are on them, I don't want to just simply do the task that's at hand. Like you need to look at what the next step is. And what I try to do is help young lawyers have understanding why, what is my passion and what I do, um, why I think it's important what we do, but also really get them to understand and ask questions. And I think that's, I'm hopefully my legacy. And I'm, I'm very, I'm very happy when I still hear from people that worked with us 15, 20 years ago. And sometimes you'll get that email or that call and just say, Hey, you know, this came up and I remember we went over a similar issue or I'm really happy for that. It's so in a small way, you know, I think that's what I'm hoping I've benefited future lawyers. What's your most famous case? Well, I, this goes back about maybe about five years ago. I've had, I've had a lot of very interesting cases, but about five years ago, a little, maybe a little long, about six years ago, actually, I was contacted by a family of a gentleman. He's a, a Guatemalan immigrant, and he was working on for a, a, a home builder doing installing a roof, and he fell off the roof, and he became a quadriplegic. And there was a lot of work, both with respect to workers' comp, as is not totally uncommon. He was paid cash for the work that he did. So there wasn't a real strong amount of you know documents to establish the employer. So it became challenging with workers' comp. And then the question is who he was working for. So what I was able to do is get first underway with workers' comp. And then I was able to establish that his employer was actually a subcontractor versus the general contractor. And the reason why that was important is because if the employer was deemed to be the general contractor, then he would have been excluded from bringing a negligence case against the general contractor because without getting into too much details, as I'm sure you know, in Massachusetts, I'm sure in many other states, you can't sue your employer for a work-related injury. You're, you're limited to those benefits that are under the workers' comp statute. So what I was able to do was get him maximum amount of benefits and get all those benefits assigned to the subcontractor, which is truly who we worked for. It was just very difficult to establish that. So I was at the same time going through conference and close to a, a full trial at, at the workers' comp, the Department of Industrial Accidents. I was able to also move forward with the third party claim. So it was a significant amount of money, which is great. And when you ask what's the most significant case, Lawyers often think about the most significant amount of money, but I was able to, despite this horrific accident and how it's affected him, I made a real difference in this man's life and in this man's family's life because of what I was able to do and get him all of his medicals taken care of, get him a significant amount of money from workers' comp and compensated for his specific injuries, and then move forward and be able to resolve the third-party claim for the general contractor based on a number of um, OSHA regulations that were violated. And it just, you know, I'm very proud of the work I did in that case. I, I really am. In Massachusetts, does the work comp carrier 
have a offset or lien on the third-party claim. They do. So when you reach the point of settling the third-party claim, you have to put together what's called a a petition for approval of third-party settlement. And then you have to look to negotiate with the workers' comp carrier. Automatically, they have to reduce, similar to what Medicare does, by the pro rata share or by the procurement costs that are being paid to the attorney. So that comes off, but you also have to look to negotiate with them further um, to reduce because the lien was quite significant in this particular case. Um, But also you have to keep an eye on what's called the hunter offset because when future benefits come due, and then this gentleman obviously was going to require medical care beyond the time the case resolved, there's a a reduction in the workers' compensation insurer's responsibility to pay all those bills. So you have to work towards minimizing that future offset as much. But yes, there were a lot of moving parts in that case. And a lot of times, as I'm sure a lot of lawyers know, you have to wear multiple hats as a lawyer. So when you're dealing with the third-party insurer, the third-party defendant, you're constantly arguing the highlights of the case as to why we're going to win this case if it goes to trial, where the defendant was negligent. Now, when you then talking to workers' comp to deal with their significant lien, you have to make them understand what the shortcomings of the case is and what the risk is. Because if we were to go to trial and it would be a defense verdict, then they would get nothing. So you're obviously, and this happens all the time with what I do, whether you're dealing with a health insurance lien or workers' comp lien, like you asked, you have to wear multiple hats. So it's just important that you're able to do that, to not just focus solely on the task at hand, but always be looking at the bigger picture. And I think that's something that I've, I've gotten better at and I hope to still get better at as I continue to practice. Stephen, uh, I'm going to wrap up here and ask you, tell the listeners why, if they have in the Boston area a work comp plaintiff's case or a personal injury case, they should hire your firm? Well, this is my cell phone. And the number one complaint that I think you hear from any client that comes to me that has had a prior lawyer or prior bad experience is that they never hear from their lawyer. That would bother me. I always aim to be the lawyer that I would want for a lawyer. So I am accessible. What I know, my clients know. And sometimes that's not great news, but I think they appreciate my candor, my honesty, my accessibility. With that, I have forged really strong relationships. I think I have a well-earned, good reputation. I work extraordinarily hard, no matter the size of the case. So I think I think I'm a good choice for a client because I, I really try to understand how whatever this situation may be has affected them. I can, I'll provide them concrete answers to the best of my ability. And I am thoroughly engaged in this journey with them to hopefully have a result that in some way, in some way compensates them or makes them as whole as possible from what we can do. So I, those I think are the strong points. Um, I think I was raised right. I think I'm a good person. I'm a good husband and a good father. And I I translate that into my law practice. Well, folks, there are a lot of good attorneys, but accessible attorneys are very hard to find. I was on the other side. I was the defense attorney. And I would have many times uh, 
plaintiffs complain about not being able to get their own attorney on the phone. Well, folks, this is the end of the Case Co's podcast. If you're in Boston and you get injured, call up Stephen and his firm. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to another episode of Case Closed, the Contingency Fee Podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and their insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. Case Closed, the Contingency Fee Podcast is led by industry experts who unlock insights from the nation's top contingency fee attorneys. Each week on the show, the guests share how they got started, secrets of their success, and what's working in today's marketplace. Guests on the Case Closed Podcast include successful contingency fee attorneys that will share their secrets so you can close more cases. Tune in each week for a dynamic conversation about winning legal strategies that will grow your business. 